sometimes you need to hit the pause button as a clinician um, and a researcher and say, hang on, this is what my underlying assumption is. We want to be evidence-based practitioners, but in fact, this is just how we should practice. Ethics is every part of every clinical decision that we make. And what it is that we do is we make lives better. Welcome to Speak Up, the Speech Pathology Australia podcast. This podcast series highlights conversations with esteemed contributors in the speech pathology space. We explore key issues in the profession in a short and easy to listen to format. Let's hear what this week's contributors have to say. This is Colleen Kerr and I'm from Speech Pathology Australia's New South Wales Professional Education Branch. I have the pleasure of chatting today with Danielle Stone and it truly is a pleasure. Danielle is a clinical specialist speech pathologist with 18 years experience following her graduation from the University of Sydney in 2003. Danielle's worked across Sydney and Canada, specialising in head and neck oncology, voice and upper airway disorders. She's completed her master's by research in 2015, investigating outcomes for transoral laser microsurgery for early laryngeal cancer, and is now in her second year of her PhD, investigating dysphonia and dysphagia in non-traumatic spinal injury and chronic pain. Danielle's published widely and has collected a raft of awards, literally too many to mention, and scholarships along the way, including a travelling fellowship to Denmark in 2018. I know Danielle to be a passionate and generous professional, and I can't wait to hear more about her work. Hi, Danielle. Hi, Colleen. Thank you. That's a really nice introduction. Oh, well, thank you for making, taking the time um, to speak with me today. I am going to start at the very beginning, and I thought I would start by embarrassing you, <laughs> by <laughs> reminding of my first impressions of you. Oh, no. 18 years ago. <laughs> And at that time thinking, wow, this is one stellar graduate. And I was convinced that you were going to carve out a memorable career in aphasia rehabilitation. So was I. Um, and your career, your career has absolutely been memorable, but it took a completely different path. And I think that's a nice place to start, just to talk about how did you end up in the area that you've specialised in? Yeah, I, I thought I would end up in aphasia rehab as well. And I, I tell my stroke colleagues at Royal North Shore Hospital and they, they absolutely don't believe me, but it's true. <laughs> and I actually really miss aphasia rehab. Um, but look, uh, just, I mean, I guess before I answer your question, uh, you know, I, I think it's likewise, I've really always admired your career, Colleen, and, and really, I guess, looked at all the ways that you've moved speech pathology uh, over the years in different directions and wonderful directions. So I kind of do feel like I should be on the other side of the, the interview. I really do. But <laughs> That is too kind, but let us focus on you. <laughs> and so, so you have moved into this, the head, neck area, voice area. And, yeah. Um, and that's been quite deliberate, hasn't it? Yeah. Look, I, I, was, I started my career, as you know, you were my first boss. Um, <laughs> I remember signing my name as a speech pathology assistant. I think it was oh, just before Christmas 2002. Uh, and, you know, I was just so excited. So I started, yeah, at, at Mount Wilga and, and then ended up at Hornsby Hospital. And so I actually did work in voice from day one. Um, Hornsby Hospital are really lucky. They have a lot of ENTs referring into their voice program. So 
you know, I, I always did a lot of aphasia rehab, but alongside that, I always did voice therapy. Um, and, and look, I, I think, you know, I think it was, we had a lot of voice patients. Um, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, but I think it was really surrounding myself with a whole range of amazing voice clinicians around Sydney particularly, but in the end over Australia, that probably, I guess, just developed my skills and then therefore my real love of voice. Um, and so... And you, you went on to explore that overseas as well. Yeah, so I moved um, to Canada after three years of working at Hornsby and I did a lot of voice over there and, and that's where I did my training for um, head and neck cancer. So look, you know, it was kind of one of those times where, you know, we, we moved to Canada and thought, look, if it all fails, we'll be lifties on the, on the ski slopes. But <laughs> we actually ended up getting really good jobs and I worked with some fantastic clinicians. And I, I think, you know, I, I look back at those years and I still think that I really didn't know what I didn't know. Um, I think it was probably moving to Westmead Hospital where I spent 10 years working uh, in the head, neck and voice caseload there that I probably ended up really growing up and, and realising what I didn't know and trying to really seek out ways to learn and to fill my gaps. And so my love of voice actually has gotten you know, more and more um, vast, I think, because I've learnt so much over the last, particularly the last 10 years. And I guess when you mentioned somewhere like Westmead, that to me, you know, my connections with Westmead have always said incredibly strong multidisciplinary teams, particularly in head and neck and voice. Um, and I've been very fortunate to share patients with you in that context over the years too. So is that your reflection on working in voice that and head and neck that the team structure is really well integrated? Yeah, I think in my early years uh, maybe working you know without an ENT on site and potentially in Canada just probably being too nervous to talk to them or, or whatever it was we, we weren't lucky enough to have a, a combined multidisciplinary clinic I think that the voice caseload or my voice management was very external to that whole assessment process and even right. that surgical treatment um, decisions um, and so Westmead was actually my first experience of working really, really closely with ENTs. Mm. And, you know, that was a way for me to really learn what I didn't know, but also to just, I don't know, gain a much broader perspective on voice disorders. And, um, and I think that's where I really, truly learnt how to assess a voice through endoscopic evaluation. Um, so I think it was that, yeah, that multidisciplinary assessment of voice through those clinics. And now at North Shore Hospital, we have some great clinics with our ENT consultants. I think it just, it's not just you in your little therapy room doing mm. therapy. I can see it much more broadly and make some, you know, bigger decisions. And then we actually, you know, are lucky enough to consult with therapists across the area um, and help them kind of decipher some of those really tricky assessment reports and assessment findings. And that's something that I really like to do as well. 
Um, and, and I think that tertiary role you have at the big teaching hospitals is really important, you know, with outreach work you do, particularly with regional clinicians and so on. But I'm going to backtrack you for a minute, Danielle. I know you dabbled, well, no, didn't dabble, you did more than that in management when you're in Canada. And I know at some point you had that tussle that a lot of clinicians do of yeah. whether they go into management or whether they stay in a clinical role. And how, how did you wrestle with that? Yeah, so I, I kind of look back and think, gosh, I can't believe I did that. But I, I was 27 and um, I was head of department there. It was the largest speech pathology department in Canada. And I was so green and I made so many mistakes. Um, but I had a very forgiving department and I'm still friends with them, thank goodness. Uh, and I probably did that for maybe 18 months of the three years that I was there. And so, yeah, when I moved back, um, gosh, it's now a long time ago, I did think, oh no, you know what? I, I really like this management business. Um, but it was actually, I, I was kind of tossing up and look, I, I was looking for jobs and there were clinical jobs and management roles going. And it was my sister that actually said to me one day, and it does sound really corny, but she did say to me, look, what actually gets you up in the morning and it wasn't management it wasn't it wasn't any of that it was my patience and so to be honest I I was really serious about going that direction but for over 10 12 13 years now I haven't looked back and it's definitely clinical is where I should be it's a nice feeling as I've had wrestled with those exact sort of sort of considerations and at the end of the day what drives me is sitting across from a client you know and so um, but I think they're, they're, I think they're decisions that resonate with lots of us at various stages of the career, our career. Um, so you talked a little about about what's helped you develop your skills and expertise. And I know you're you're always quite self-deprecating in terms of making comments about what you know, knowing what you don't know. And I, and I do think that's healthy to always be thinking, what am I missing, or what you know, what what information can I learn? So you, I mean, you're naturally inquisitive. Yeah, I. I, I did think about, you know, I guess how I would answer a question that I, I thought that you'd probably ask. And I think, yeah, so I did do a, a bit of reflection. I, I am very internally driven um, and I really don't like treating somebody if I don't know what's actually wrong with them and if I mm. don't actually know what my therapy is trying to do. Um, and so the girls at North Shore laugh at me because I'm always asking too many questions about what's actually wrong with your patient. Um, and so I guess I've... And this can mean like at a physiological level. Yeah, like so whether it's... Yep. What's the physiology and what, what it, how does my therapy relate to that? Yes. And so I mm. think if I reflect back on my early days, I was a slave to handouts. My focus was on what technique will I use? I was really treating patients from the top down rather than actually really understanding what was going on and choosing a treatment technique to target a real goal that that patient needed. And so yeah, I think, so really to answer your question, it's it, yeah, very inquisitive and, and I guess impatient with what I don't know. But also I really think that vulnerability is really important. I think that never pretending that you know and always being open and I guess brave enough to ask what you think are silly questions and I have asked so many questions over the years to so many of my mentors uh, and now you know those and I still do uh, and I think they are you know hugely um, to thank for 
you know, the, the clinical skills that I have developed. Um, so And so, yeah, so I think you're right that, that networking is, has always been strong in voice and head and neck. We are so... I, I think it's, yeah. um, it's, to me, as a clinician who's been around the traps for a while, that, that sort of support network stuff, peer, peer network stuff happened really early in voice and head and neck and has stayed strong. Yeah, in there, it's almost kind of two separate worlds, but I feel so lucky. So voice across Australia is unbelievably mm. um, collaborative and that is, you know, both a mixture of speech pathologists and the laryngologists. And so, you know, I, I've, and then in the world of head and neck, particularly in Sydney, you know, I've grown up with this wonderful group of speech pathologists for, you know, 10, 12 years in Sydney where we've just grown up, learnt, learnt what we know. And yeah, there's been that, you know, there's not really ever been that competition. Everybody has mm. been very, very open to not being the expert and, and understanding that to be an expert, you just need to know what you don't know and keep searching for the answers that we might not ever know. Um, mm. And so yeah, I think being very open and very vulnerable to what you don't know and always asking and thinking about what you're doing in your therapy. Um, and I think I've learnt that from others. You've taken that questioning kind of mindset to the next level when you've looked at your research. So, you know, obviously that's continuing on wanting more information and want, and, and that would have informed clinical practice as well. Can you tell us a little bit about about that research and, and how you ended up with your, with your master's work initially? Yeah, so it, I, um, I think the, the, the project really came about because, you know, there wasn't really anything to inform my clinical practice about what to expect after laser surgery um, for very early larynx cancer. And I couldn't answer the questions of the surgeons. I couldn't answer the questions of the patients. And I couldn't answer my own questions to inform, you know, when to discharge patients or mm. what to target in therapy. And look, my, my master's research certainly didn't answer half of those questions. But I guess if I think, you know, what my master's research did more than anything, it was actually teaching me how to think. Mm. And I know that sounds really silly. Um, I remember my supervisor at the time, Tricia McCabe, saying to me, look, don't worry if your master's research doesn't come up with the most groundbreaking results, and it certainly didn't, but you will learn how to think. And I had no idea what she was talking about at the time, but it, it was it's really true. I just learned how to maybe think a little bit more quietly, um, really, well, it taught me to read research and actually critique research, but it taught me to ask the right questions. So you've gone on to work as a peer reviewer for journals and so on, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, and I mean, mm. that's both a learning um, opportunity for me as well because I can learn how not to write journal articles. Uh, so that's <laughs> that's been a really good learning opportunity. Um, so, yeah, so the master's research, I guess it told us, look, you know, yes, there are significant voice problems after laser surgery, but, you know, there were absolutely no quality of life concerns with any of our patients. Um, so they had terrible voices on acoustic analysis and yet reported no quality of life implications. Now, it was a really small data set and th these people were retired and, and a certain demographic. So it's certainly mm. we're not saying that it doesn't matter. But I think over the years, and perhaps it's working with, you know, gruff head and neck surgeons maybe, I've really learnt to just not worry if my patient doesn't worry. Um, 
I'm much more patient focused and that wasn't just my research that led me that way, but ultimately it's the quality of life that we're yeah. after, isn't it? Yeah, so, they didn't know, care that they had a rough voice or a fundamental frequency yeah. of 100 hertz. They didn't and care. And it is, it is their values, not ours. Yeah. So, you know, it's, even though we might, might want perfect outcomes, sometimes it's mm. what works for the patients, isn't it? So um, now I'm also going to mention that in terms of the how you're developing skills and expertise, you're, you're involved with Laryngology Australia, is that right? Yes. Is, yeah, so explain that a little because people may not be aware of those kinds of opportunities. Yeah, so the Laryngology Society of Australasia is a group of speech pathologists and ENTs around Australia and New Zealand. And I'll do a plug because I think it's a great organisation. We are, look, we're developing a lot more kind of output, particularly next year. But I think the thing for me is that it's just brought that national or international world of voice management um, much closer. And so I'm able to utilise a huge range of ENTs and speech paths to, uh, you know, ask my questions and, and get that good perspective so that my experience bank, when I manage a patient, when I ask a question, when I plan treatment is not just from my own experiences, but it might be from a conversation that I listen to between a speech path and an ENT on a meeting or um, a webinar or whatever else. But yeah, it just um, it opens your networks and um, it's a very supportive group where it really is a really equal playing field between speech paths and laryngologists, which, yeah, is, is a really um, good example to, to work from. And I think that's exceptional in your field. And I think um, attending the conferences, that's really patently obvious that, yeah, you know, that Adelaide conference is so good. A hundred percent. Yeah. We would be in New Zealand this week if it hadn't been for COVID. So sad. I realise that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There were hikes planned, Dan. Yeah. But I think the great thing about LSA is that we are really trying to bring really high quality dysphagia. It's not just voice, dysphagia research into Australia and New Zealand. We don't have to always look to our colleagues overseas to see really high quality research being carried out we have absolutely amazing people here um and so i think it's really bringing that standard here and showing the world that we actually can host these amazing international very very high quality conferences so yeah watch this space for 2021 yeah high value i think it's really important for people in their career to look for those kind of multidisciplinary conferences as well um both for presenting but attending i think it's a huge a huge tip for speech pathologists to be on the radar for those sorts of opportunities. I'm interested in your other thoughts on on for perhaps new career speech, early career speech pathologists, or or old hands like myself in terms of what makes what do you think makes a good speech pathologist? So you've mentioned in in your field that constantly tying back to the physiology, looking at what the symptoms are, being able to explain link that with your therapy. But in broader terms, what do you think makes a good speech pathologist? I think that's a question I I think about all the time because don't you just meet some speech paths and they're just wonderful speech paths. I think they were born to be a speech pathologist. Um, look, I think it sounds corny, but I do think someone who just loves their job. Um, I think someone who doesn't think of it as a job. I think it would be incredibly hard to be a speech pathologist who does think of it just as a job. Um, I think it, it takes its toll and it, it is really hard to separate life from speech pathology. Um, so I think someone who loves it, of course, that, that they're going to end up seeking opportunities and going the extra mile for their patients just because they have a genuine love of what they do. Um, 
I think curiosity to and and you know being inquisitive enough to ask questions there is so much we don't know um, and I think that asking questions particularly in my world too and I'm sure this can be um, easily transferred to other worlds asking questions to my head and neck surgeons the ENT colleagues not only I think gives you the information to be a good speech pathologist but I think sneakily um, educates them on how clever we are. <laughs> so I do it quite strategically. Oh, 100%. I think, I think um, mm. no, I think it's reciprocal. I don't think there's any question about that. I think that if you're constantly conveying quality of life considerations, concern about outcomes beyond the immediate post-surgical environment, you're, you're continually, <laughs> it, it is definitely a two-way street, you know, so... Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think it's necessarily, you know, I don't care that they think we're clever, but I think if they know the questions that we need to do a good job, that's what they will give us. You know, there's so many referrals that you get, particularly years ago, you know, referral voice therapy, speech therapy. Um, Whereas if you have a, a referrer that actually talks to you in physiological terms, understands the actual basis of what you are going to do, um, I think that your job satisfaction in rehabilitation is going to be much better. I think th- I think you're right. Um, I'm going to ask you a little bit about inspiration. So I could rattle off the names of dozens of speech pathologists that would say Danielle Stone inspires me. Um, what what inspires you? Oh look, it's my patients. It's my laryngectomies who think that life has ended at the time of a total laryngectomy and. They realise that, look, it's a bloody hard road, but it doesn't have to end and we are there through the thick of it to help them and they will have a voice, hopefully, for the majority uh, at the end. Um, It is, you know, voice is incredibly motivating because you can really see results very quickly um, with many patients. Um, I'm inspired by being part of really dedicated multidisciplinary teams that really utilise our skills to develop diagnoses and to treat the patient in the best way. Um, I've had some wonderful experience over the last couple of years working with our respiratory physicians um, in the upper air, upper airway world, the breathing, breathing um, disorders. Um, and the, you know, just that real appreciation for how much our assessments contribute to that whole diagnostic process, uh, particularly in the area of upper airway dysfunction. Um, and, and very much so with voice, our therapy is often very diagnostic for the ENT. So it's that kind of thing where you not only make a difference for the patient, but you also get to interact with a really dynamic um, very forward-thinking team who are also very dedicated to their patient, um, and I guess really seeing the value of our assessment and therapy. What else inspires me? My colleagues. Um, those colleagues, 10, 20, 30 years more experienced than me, that have really paved the way for voice and head and neck clinicians in Australia um, to be really integral members of the multidisciplinary team and to really have a voice uh, at the table when treating head, neck and voice patients. Um, And really we are 
only as good as those people that come before us and those people that teach us and those people that we surround ourselves by. So, and my peers, there are amazing speech pathologists doing such innovative clinical practice and leading international research uh, in my world, in head, neck and voice, uh, and in many other worlds uh, in speech pathology. And this is something that has just grown exponentially since I graduated. Um, So I think my peers who I spend every day with and who challenge me and teach me to think different ways and who I get to share my clinical experiences with the ups and downs, they are who inspire me as well. Well, at all levels of that process, isn't it? Like you said, it's the patient thanking you across their their lifespan, literally, um, and and seeing how what you've learned from that patient translates to a, a development of assessment or uniform data collection or, you know, at all points it intersects. I think, I think you're right. Um, and you've mentioned also, obviously, inspirational peers here and overseas um and i am i right that you're going to be doing something for us for speech pathology australia soon is that right something coming up in terms of mm. yeah yeah so i've just developed or just finishing developing a self-directed learning module for voice disorders um really really hard to kind of get that down to a couple of hours of really nice kind of neat learning so we're focusing on Uh, goal setting for voice treatment and selecting treatment techniques. Uh, And I think this is so important in the area of voice. I feel like so many people are scared of voice Um, and I don't really know why, but it, it can be, I guess, if you don't really understand what maybe what the therapy techniques are trying to do, it can be very fluffy and, and a little bit confusing and quite abstract. Um, and so I, I've always... Oh, I find that really interesting you say that because I find it measurable. <laughs> and, um, it is measurable. It's and, much easier uh, than dysphagia. Uh, and, and as you said, you know within three or four, three sessions, are you getting somewhere, you know? Are you doing the right thing, you know? But I think it's people trusting their ear. Yeah, I, th- I think it's tr- people trusting what they're hearing and and actually really understanding that they have to listen rather than talk um, and really trusting their ear. Um, And of course, understanding the physiology of, you know, what's going wrong and how those therapy techniques are modifying that, that physiology. I think that's, that's, you know, that's, that's hard stuff. That's, that's physics. Uh, And it's taken me a really long time to understand that stuff. Uh, And so I'm really passionate about demystifying all that for people because I was there in those trenches for a really long time trying to search for those answers and actually feeling I guess a little bit you know like I didn't know what I was doing and and I think that um you know there's not a lot of education around actually how to do the therapy and so I take my job in my district really seriously um, by trying to you know be very open to people asking how do you do that technique why are you doing it Um, rather than just you know sending off an assessment report and saying treat them I think that's great and I, I really look forward to seeing the module I think you're quite right though there's sometimes there's a real difference between reading about a technique and getting the whole kinesthetic value in the technique and being able to explain it and, and replicate it and and you're right if people have maybe missed that somewhere along the way um they're not likely to jump into voice 
Yeah, I mean, I remember te- I remember learning this stuff at uni and I was so inhibited and so I didn't give myself a really good goal of actually doing the demos that I should have done. And so when I'm trying to encourage my patients to do that, I get it, I get it. Um, and look, and it, it was definitely way after my graduating years that I, that I could do this and it was only... You know, I, I remember once, uh, I still I still laugh, um, I went to a workshop once and I asked Jocelyn Priestley, who will just hate it if she hears that her name has been mentioned publicly, um, <laughs> I asked her a question about some therapy technique. But let's just, pa- let's just pause for a moment and let's just pause for a moment and acknowledge that she is some kind of deity in the field of voice, isn't she? And absolutely delightful. She is amazing. She doesn't think she is. But I asked her this question and she took me aside and she demonstrated this technique and then she made me do it and I was so intimidated and so embarrassed, but it was so helpful and I just kept doing that to her. I still do, actually. Um, Cecilia Pemberton, I've asked her a million questions over 18 years and still continue to, yeah, show you how to do yeah. this. So That's you just right. have to ask. Yes, yes, yeah. No, I think that, uh, I think you're right. I think you're right. And even if we think we're on the track with something, it doesn't hurt to just say, this is how I teach it, you know. So I think some of those masterclasses are, are absolutely invaluable. And I'm sure your your presentation will be vital for lots of people. I'm going to ask, ask you the question that I um, threatened to ask you, which is... <laughs> that whenever I look at your life, I go, how do you do it? <laughs> how do you do it, Danielle? Um, because I know, you, um, you know you're not only this incredibly um, professional, competent speech pathologist, you're a mum of three and uh, an athlete. <laughs> oh, not anymore, and, Colleen. Um, oh, my goodness. Please don't give me that well, credit. Well, I, I still remember the triathlon photos, I think, you know, so... Uh, you, you didn't see an, who was behind me, which was no one. <laughs> <laughs> you juggled just such an enormous amount. So I am going to ask that question. I think it's important um, yeah. to know. It how, is really important. How do you balance it and, and how does it work? Maybe you should interview my husband. <laughs> ah, yes, we all need the support team. <laughs> no, it, it's a really good question. I actually answer it to people all the time. You know, I think often people say, oh, you're amazing, you do all of this. I actually not. I just choose to spend my time on what I spend it on and and things give. Uh, you know, there's only so much time and we all have the same amount of time. Look, I... I um, I do have a very, very, very supportive husband who is incredibly selfless. And I think that my my way of juggling it with family is to really try to teach the children what I'm doing. So, you know, I always tell them, mummy's trying to learn something that other people don't know. And I'm trying to teach people things so that people can, you know, so that these people can help help our patients and you know they love the fact that mummy teaches people how to drink and how to how to eat and how to talk and so you know when I'm opening up my computer on a Saturday afternoon it's not just mummy on the computer they know they have some idea of what I'm doing and there's some value put on it um look I I I don't need a lot of sleep um things do give I wish I could have more time in front of the tv I wish I could have more date nights I wish I could be spending a bit more time exercising um you know sometimes I do wish that I could volunteer at the canteen more um and you know there are a lot of things going on in my head but that's who I am um my my parents are exactly the same 
you know, a lot of people who know me will say that I absolutely do not know the word no, and right. I absolutely mm-hmm. need to sometimes, but I, I do all this stuff because I actually do love it. Um, and it's what drives me and it's what, you know, I, I, so much a part of who I am is a speech path and, um, and yeah, I, I really, I love it. So I, I you know, with my PhD, I don't, I, I feel like I, it's my choice to have done it. No one's making me do it. No one has the clock. Well, there is a clock ticking, but you know, no one's making me do this. So it's, it's my choice. And, um, and I, 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 that does, you know, help me not get too stressed. Um, I've been really honest with, you know, supervisory teams over the years, you know, they know that my priority is my children. They know that, for example, I might not get 30 hours of work done that week. And so being really honest and open that, you know, all my work is my priority that week. Um, so yeah, there are a lot of balls uh, in the air. Um, you know, if it wasn't speech pathology or PhD, I'm sure it would be something else. <laughs> and um, I'm sure when the PhD finishes, there'll be something else. <laughs> well, I think well, the profession is incredibly fortunate that it is speech pathology. But I'm going to say what, what you've really made me reflect on talking to you today is um, just that need for candour across the board, you know, in terms of your talk about vulnerability, but, you know, really about saying this is what I can and can't do and this is what I do and I don't know. And I think that's a really nice takeaway lesson in all fields, um, you know, being able to to admit <laughs> where you need to learn more and, oh, and um, all the time. never, never be complacent. <laughs> no, never. And honestly, my, my biggest advice for people, you know, is ask the doctors, ask the nurses questions. You know, my favorite line is, look, for my learning, can I just ask this question? Um, And I have asked Mm. that multiple, multiple times. And, you know, it will only make your therapy more satisfying and and obviously, most importantly, more effective. Um, So I think to juggle what you juggle, you have to love what you're juggling. And you have to love all of those balls that you're juggling so that you don't want to drop all of them. Um, well, I think that's that's fantastic, and yes. all I can say is just. I also drink red wine. <laughs> well, drink the red wine, but keep juggling because we're all all the better for for your multi talented <laughs> approach. I don't know who I'd be if I didn't. <laughs> no, absolutely fantastic to talk to you, and I know the the modules that you're setting up will be really invaluable to to many clinicians. So. Hopefully, um, you know, this is the first of many things that Speech Pathology Australia will be asking you to do. You'll just have to add that into your one other ball to juggle. Um, And hopefully we get a chance to chat again too. So thanks very much, Danielle. Thanks so much, Colleen. It's been really lovely to, to chat with you tonight. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your colleagues. Thank you for listening and bye for now.